0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of One Vision. Joining Arun and myself today are Jim Prévot and Jasper Dawa, founders of Strategy Bricks. Welcome to the show, gents. Thanks, Theo. Thank you so much uh, for joining us today. And thank you for the little history lesson that I got between You guys in the room now, I know a whole lot more about him than I didn't before. Um, Before we start, though, can you tell our audience a little bit about both of your career journeys from big force to what are you both doing right now?
1: Uh Uh, Yeah, I'm happy to go first. Um, Hi, Hi, everyone. Uh, So I've been in the risk and compliance space for almost about 20 years. Um, The fun fact is I am an engineer by background. So um, you know I became a, you know, uh, um, an accidental compliance officer at some point in my journey. So I started my career by um, building a lot of risk and compliance tools, mostly sure. in the fraud space, slipped into uh, more of the EML transaction monitoring space and sanctions a little bit. I was always very fascinated with the lawyers was this close from going to law school, dodged a bullet there. Um, I moved out of India. Uh, I was in London for about a year, then moved to uh, Chicago where I started working for Ernst & Young. Um, I was with them for a few years, then moved to PwC. Uh, my experience with both EY and PwC was great primarily from a standpoint where I was working with a lot of lawyers, uh, a lot of ex-regulators, to really understand why compliance was really important, what was... Um, you know, what was this whole beef about, you know, AML, you know, fines and banks getting in trouble. The, the, the other interesting aspect then was like before 2008, no one really cared about risk and compliance as much. Like no one gave a shit. And when the regulations were, they were in after 9-11, uh, but uh, the regulators weren't as empowered and it was around the 2008 time frame when this when the when, you know when the downturn happened the regulators started empowering a lot of these compliance officers you know and they gave them a lot of teeth made them a lot more independent that's when this whole industry you know took off and so for, so for me i was kind of lucky to be in that space where you know i'm working with these uh, you know big four consulting firms uh now advising you know the top five banks about all of their you know financial crimes screw-ups, mostly in the tech space. So I moved to New York for a few years and then uh you know and then PwC asked me to help set up uh the financial crimes tech practice in London because we had a lot of clients um in in, in the UK and in Singapore that were getting in trouble. So I think it was, so I spent another maybe two years, two and a half years in London. Um, But it was at that point I had done the first 10, 12 years of my, you know, compliance journey. And I knew one thing for sure, that I did not want to do anything with banks. I think banks had a lot of money to solve a lot of these problems, but nothing ever got done. So I was supremely disillusioned. Um, You know, I had gained a lot of experience. You know, I knew a lot of, you know, Right people at banks, but in uh, a lot of banks, this generally happens if you're a consultant, you know, every banking client they offer you some really great, cushy jobs. Uh, so you have to cry yourself to sleep, not you know, every night, then you have to walk away from that kind of money. Uh, so the idea was that I'm not going to do that, but I didn't know what I was going to do. And it was coincidental, I was supposed to move back to New York, and PwC um, made that whole offer. They, they were struggling to find somebody to run the fintech compliance business, because again, you know, like banks, the consulting, conventional consulting businesses, they suck when it comes to FinTech. There is no, they they don't have no clue what's going on there. So I moved to San Francisco and I, you know, I set up that whole practice up from scratch, which for me was a great game changer. I walked in thinking everybody's going to be all over me from my experience. It was exactly the, the opposite, which was, Fintechs didn't care about my banking experience. They didn't consider themselves to be banked. They were moving at 150 miles an hour and I was struggling to catch up. So my first two years were a bit of a struggle. Uh, made some good friends, mentors. They really helped me through the process. Um, I had to shed my suit, my tie. I didn't even know that that's not the dress code for Fintechs. It
2: took you some time though before you took the tie off.
1: Yeah, it did, yeah. Uh, yeah, so we built a team about. 40 consultants here uh, on the West Coast. Uh, We had uh, Stripe, Block, Facebook Payments, Visa, Square. A lot of these uh, prominent uh, fintechs as customers. And for me, that was the turning point in my career. where I knew that this is the space I'm going to be in. I just didn't know how. And, uh, And I loved consulting way too much by then. But for me, I knew, just like I knew banking wasn't for me, I knew the big four wasn't for me. Uh Stripe offered me to come in and had compliance for them. This was probably in 2018, 2019. So I uh one of the reasons I also joined was because A, I wanted the in-house experience, and B, I didn't have my green card, so I couldn't start my own consulting business. So I was kind of buying time at that point in time. I spent about two, two and a half years there. Uh mind-blowing experience, one of the most high-powered fintechs uh, you know, uh that anybody could ever work for. Uh, great learning experience, but in my second year, I knew, you know, strategy bricks had to happen. We incorporated the business. I was uh, calling Jim every third day telling him, Hey man, we're going to change the whole consulting industry. And I was selling him the dream and, uh, and eventually, you know, Jim, Jim came by. So, yeah, I think from, from, from a strategy bricks perspective, we guys are a boutique and compliance consulting business. We are focused heavily towards fintechs and crypto businesses primarily. Early days, like our website used to say that, you know, if you're a bank, don't even bother. Like we've taken that off, hoping that some neo bank is going to come by and ask for our help. So we're not trying to shoot ourselves in the foot, but we've had a great run. We've had some um, really amazing early stage uh, Web3 businesses who we onboarded. In fact, those were the first few on the backs of whom we actually built the business. We moved on to some of the bigger, you know, centralized finance crypto players. That's where the money is for us. So that kind of works out well. But, um, but yeah, um, happy. I know this was a very long-winded introduction, but you know, uh, really looking forward to the discussion. I'm happy to dwell deeper. Jim, do you want to go?
2: I'll do i I'll do a quicker one. I'll do a quicker one. Um, yes, I've been. I've been in the uh, in the financial crime compliance space for. Uh, less than jazz for so 10 years. So I wasn't, I wasn't there during the 2008 crisis. I'm a little bit younger. Um, but yeah, no, I've been in there for about 10 years, started, um, in consulting. So a couple of years in a different consultancies and then moved over to, um, uh, to PWC where I met uh, jazz, uh, jazz in London. And, and that was very much the financial crime analytics and technology side of, um, uh, of financial crime for, for PWC. So things like, you know, implementing some system, calibrating some system, trying to think what are the new technologies, uh, that are going like, to revolutionize the world of, uh, of financial crime. And then kind of like started like uh, triggering a little bit of an interest in the, in the crypto space as well. Um, so I spent a little while over there and then decided to, um, test the, uh, the vendor side a little bit more. So I went over to, uh, to Quantexa. Um, not too sure, um, if people are, are familiar with, with Quantexa here, but, um, it is very interesting technology that that kind of takes a little bit of a different spin on what a traditional transaction monitoring system or what other kind of like uh, investigation system would look like. So just very very interesting piece of tech and and then we realized you know as uh, as I just mentioned, you know we were calling each other every three days to understand how uh, how to set all, all this up and and one of the things we kind of like realize is a lot of those kind of like crypto companies starting, a lot of those fintech company. Uh, starting uh, in a situation where they need to get going, but they've got that big barrier of entry, which is uh, which is compliance, which is a very painful one. And we realized that they would spend an awful lot of time, um, kind of like deviating their their effort in terms of building the product, building the company, uh, and just get like a bunch of stress uh, effort and and just very costly effort um, associated with trying to build up what the compliance program is. So we decided we're going to come. Come and do come in in that space take the whole that whole pain away and just um, make sure that we we support we, we take the pain away we support them on every aspect so that they can support a little bit more and actually building the the, the core cool products that they uh, they want to bring to market
3: thanks for the introduction and setting the scene so um i'll jump into um the the core of the discussion with a with a question if that's okay um, so you've you've seen a lot of banking and AML controls within banking, and Web3, of course, is a, is a completely new animal. Um, how do you see kind of the, the typologies between the two, two domains, uh, if you like? Because we have several standard patterns, if you like, money laundering patterns that we see in traditional finance. Um, how do you see that and how do you compare that with Web3? Can you give us a little bit of flavor there?
1: Yeah, I think... <clears throat> I think the fundamental principles for compliance are very similar. As we stand today, I think, will those principles change by centralized and decentralized finance industry? I think so. I think that that the principles need to change because these industries themselves are very, very different. Now, in terms of going back to your question about patterns, So right now, the lens that we see, like we have a DeFi customer who walks in there like, hey, can you help us? Set up our compliance program. They're like, yeah, let's do it. We should be thinking about you should you know, using a futuristic lens and telling them that you know these are the parents that are more relevant to you, and they make a lot of sense. But those parents would be, they would be basically alien parents when you go to their bank partners. The problem with the industry today, as I see it, is eventually the compliance program that the battery industry has to sell is still to the banks in the back. No one's able to survive entirely independently. Um, what I'm trying to say is that eventually when you need uh, you know, ramp-on, ramp-off on, ramp support, you need to like have some fiat interaction, some banker is going to come into play. And the business people, they get very excited about the prospect of being in this space. So they are a lot more open. Um, two, three years ago, banks like you know, Wells Fargo and a few others, they would just come back and say, you're not going to touch this. as is a 20 foot pole. I think suddenly everybody figured out last year, this is a great opportunity. Now they're jumping on this, but keep one thing in mind. These are business people who have figured out that this is going to be a new or a parallel economy that's going to come up. Compliance is just, you know, still sitting in the back room, thinking about, you know, transaction coming in, transaction going out. I need to know. I need to have your passport. I need to have your ID. That's the lens that they're still looking at your program with. So if the same DeFi client has to go and get onboarded at a bank, uh, compliance becomes a humongous hurdle. So our clients come back to us and say, hey, can you just design a program for us that the bank is going to buy? So at some level, they do feel like they're not doing justice to our clients and to the future of this industry. Uh, But hopefully, I think we get that, you know, we get the bandwidth to be able to think a little bit more futuristically. Um, The patterns are, so so the principles that I was started off uh, talking about, they're like, you need to know who is sending the money. You need to know who the money is going to. You need to know why are they doing this. And that's pretty much fundamentally it. So if you have these two or three pieces of information, I can see that the sender and the recipient are like not bad people; they're not on any sanctioned list, and the purpose of that transaction is legitimate, which basically means you're not selling, you know, crack cocaine online uh, or doing something funky that you shouldn't be doing. If I have these three or four vital pieces of information, any compliance officer worth their salt should be able to go back and say that this business or this transaction is legitimate. The challenge that you run into on the Web three space is primarily on two fronts. One is anonymity, and second is um, second is manual governance and oversight. So, one thing that so so while I think while the while the the ledgers and the blockchain is phenomenal for you to be able to really track transaction i think that's 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 a supreme power that the technology brings to the table is unlike fiat like once i give you my cash or my deposit you have no idea where that where the funds really came from three four five nodes before uh, if it's on the ledger you know you can go and track back you know you can go to like a lot of you know different you know hops before and really understand and connect a lot of dots and patterns but then A lot of times when the names get lost, you know, compliance from a government standpoint, I think uh, they need always a door to knock. That's the other challenge. Why the names are important? Because they can associate a name with your address. And once you screw up, they can pass that information back to law enforcement and they want a door to knock. I think when these elements start getting taken away, uh, that's where things start to fall apart and you know the banks get nervous because the regulators are not happy and law enforcement is not okay i think that's that's one of the biggest uh, hurdles in the challenge second point that i mentioned about governance and oversight the industry is very attuned to having um, a model which is nothing but an algo in the middle and some maker checker principle on top of it which basically means arun's gonna create the model and Jazz is going to test the model and somebody else is going to document it so that we can reproduce the model and we're all good. I think that's the one part which I feel is going to get resolved, where you can rely on a self-governing model that basically does the right thing and is not really you know, managed by humans, uh, so to say. I think that's the technical advancement that we, I mean, it's a little bit like The analogy is like, I'm zooming, I'm hoping when Google came by, everybody was questioning is this information correct or not. We don't ask that question anymore. I'm sure the government is Googling stuff. We are doing it. So we kind of have built that trust over a period of time, although it's a private entity. Uh, so But I think the self-governance of these models, I think we learn how to use them and we'll get familiarized with them and we'll start trusting them. So that's a problem that will get solved. The one thing which is a big looming question is like can you take you take the government out of your business can you take you know can you do this more anonymized so personally I don't think that's gonna happen for a wide variety of reasons we can go as deep as you know we want to today and I'll be happy to share my thoughts but uh, but that's the big challenge but the parents you know if we can answer these fundamental principle questions I think uh, I think it kind of checks off boxes on
2: both ends. I don't know, Jim, if you think I'm something. Yeah, I was going to say, like, in terms of patterns, very much kind of like following, you know, you are going to think of like rapid movement of funds, the the structuring, um, so the change of behavior, all of those things are very similar, but what, what's going to heavily change in terms of uh, blockchain is going to be the, the way you then are able to investigate those. So, you know, I think you, you're probably going to cover this a little bit more around, Uh, the blockchain and the the kind of like the level of transparency that we've got on the blockchain. But one of the the key pieces, typically at the moment you can look at patterns, let's say one degree removed, but now we can start looking at patterns two, three, four, five, or even more nodes uh, of degree removed, which means that you start having like a much more holistic view of the risk across a different like existing patterns or similar patterns. There are some areas that, uh, which is not so much patterns, but kind of like new ways of uh, money laundering that you need to look at, uh, or new methods, kind of like cross um, uh, cross uh, chain bridges, for example, that you don't especially have it in in the normal uh, a normal like traditional banking side, but but yeah. So that this is kind of like uh, uh, m- more on the same patterns, but different ways of investigating.
3: So Jim, um, I remember sp- having this conversation with you a few weeks back. Um, Particularly around the layering um, uh, aspect, where in traditional finance, of course, this layering happens in different ways, but within blockchain, you yeah. could move money between different chains yeah. and really make sure that nobody is able to trace a transaction. This is despite the transparency and the traceability that blockchain offers. Um, are you seeing those kind of elements? Because one of the challenges we are having with uh, all these CFI issues as well is there is no way we are able to find how money has been moved. I mean, there are some some really cool on-chain uh, analysis experts who've been yeah. kind of trying to get their heads around all this. But surely that should be some framework and some tooling around it in due course time. I mean, did, do you have any insight around this? Across the other, uh, the, on the cross-chain um, piece in particular? Yeah, I mean, anything that has multiple blockchains involved and, and the kind of, Reduces the transparency around the block, what what we the, good
2: There are more and more kind of like tech uh, tech vendors that try and kind of tackle the cross check uh, cross chain aspect. Um, you know, Elliptic's also kind of like released a, a big report on uh, on on cross chain and has um, worked on start starting to develop a, a a piece of kit here. I think it is still going to be a challenge. We're not going to get full full visibility the same way. It's hard to get full visibility whenever you uh, uh, you you send money to kind of like a mixer, for example. You, you don't always have the, the visibility to exactly what goes in and what goes out and wh- whether the money going out is actually the money uh, from that kind of like wallet that was going in. So I think that there is still a lot that needs to be brought in from a transparency perspective, but at least if we can start getting that a little bit more, like more and more on that traceability, then then we'll, we'll be better. But I think there's still a, a lot of effort that needs to be done from that perspective.
1: Yeah, so my... I think my take on this is it's a bit of a common theme on uh, cross-chain analytics. So I think what happened in the last year was there was an insane amount of funding that went into a lot of the blockchain analytics businesses and everybody focused on their own area of domain which pretty much was aligned with a certain blockchain and when you I think the the feedback that we got was more from like the the larger C5 players uh, who are looking for cross-chain analytic solutions. So they've been pushing their vendors back to Jim's point. The vendors are now trying to build those capabilities. I think a lot of the the top, you know, three or four players in this market, uh, they kind of dodged the bullet, I believe, you know, last year they got, you know, a decent amount of funding. So I'm hoping that this year you will see, you know, one or two of these systems prevail, where they should probably be able to bring a lot more holistic cross-chain analytics, uh, you know, to surface because more than what we guys are talking about, what we think is the right thing. I think this is some feedback that they're getting directly from their customers. So for them to be able to survive, because the customers today, like if you look at a lot of these big players, they're using all of them. It's just not elliptic. Like all of their competitors, like if you go to a Gemini, you go to a quantum, they're using all of these systems to address a lot of their needs, but for them to be able to uh, contextualize across, chain, across blockchains, I think uh, one of these vendors or few of them should definitely emerge. You know, a more powerful government, you know, in one form or the other. I see the advantage. Let's talk about the positives first. So I grew up in India. I think... It, for the longest time, even now, has been a very cash-based economy. One of the problems with the cash-based economy, even after demonetization happened, the idea was, you know, we're going to go super digital, which which we did. I think, you know, it's been quite remarkable every time I go back and I see how, you know, payments and transactions have just, you know, moved, it skyrocketed in the last couple of years. Uh, did that eliminate corruption? Did that eliminate, you know, um, cash money movement, you know, um, transactions being done under the table? I don't think so. I think it's still there. It's just that um, it's taken a different form or a shape. Uh, You can easily survive with having no cash in your pocket. But, you know, if you're, if you want to do funky stuff, you need some cash Um, you know, to, uh, to, to live your life. So if, if he, if he went on um, a digital equivalent for all the cash and that's all traceable and that's all that you're, and you end up using. Yeah, I think, I think there's value. Um, There's definitely value there, but I, I just don't understand, you know, the whole concept of, you know, what's broken and what problem are we really trying to solve? So, um, it's just that if cash is going to get, you know, altered by, you know, digital money. I I don't know. I have a feeling that that problem for the most part of the world is actually been solved. I mean, I can still do, you know, I can still do an on-ramp. I can still, I can use, you know, I can still use crypto. I can still use um, my fintech wallets to move a lot of my money and to do a lot of these transactions. They might not be. Uh, massive big transactions that I can do. Um, so yeah, I mean, so so that's my skeptic part. But I also feel like every time the government takes up like initiatives, technology initiatives, the, the size and scale of you know these economies, I, it just makes me a little bit nervous if they can really pull these things off. Uh, we've had some really great discussions with folks in DC on this specific topic. I don't, I haven't met anybody. Who is involved in in around these similar projects, working for the government, who've been enthusiastic about you know that this is going to change, uh, you know things for good. Um, India ran this massive project. I think they 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 launched something. They're about to launch something. They're doing that beta runs, which is all great. But uh, but yeah, I I do feel that this is a little bit more politically motivated, where you want to make sure that you have like, there's like, I think the governments are having FOMO. The one thing I believe that the governments, irrespective of like you being a developed, developing, never developed economy, whatever you might be, the one thing the government does really poorly across the world is technology. And the one thing they do really, really well is control money. So I think it's one of those, you know, measures that you want to make sure that you've got your hand in the pie and you just don't let this, you know, run amok. Uh, that's my belief. I know this is not a very positive answer, <laughs> but that's what I feel.
2: Jim, what do you think? No, nah, I mean, like, I think that, that resonates with me as well. Nothing, nothing really much I, I can bring. I think I can bring another lens from a, <clears throat> a little bit more of a, a money laundering perspective and what my thoughts are in terms of what they would try to do in them, but I think we, we can keep it to keep it to, um, for, uh, as an answer for now, from a CBTC perspective.
1: Yeah, I have, a, I have a great idea. I think if any government wants to, like, you know, run their own digital currency, I think the compliance function should eliminate, they should just give law enforcement access and they yeah. do compliance on their own. Like, let the banks do the banking stuff, let the fintech crypto businesses do whatever the hell they're doing. If you've got access to the transactions, you know who's buying, who's selling, you have the transaction, just go get a bunch of like additional law enforcement people and take the compliance effort off. Like If you have all the data, just go find the bad guys. Don't put this on the financial services institutions.
3: Hopeful, bright and cheery note. Um, I want to move on to um, another topic, the metaverse. Um, I don't know if you have a lot of metaverse clients at this point, but um, would love to hear your take. Uh, I think, uh, Jim, I think we spoke about this as well. I'm not sure. Um, one of the challenges we're going to have with metaverses is, is that, uh, I mean, even the existing ones, we already see a lot of microtransactions happening there. Um, and and which, is, which is not quite a fintech, which is not quite traditional financial services. Um, and the wallets are often anonymous, um, but you still need to have AML controls there. You probably, and I think, the world is probably even moving towards uh, digital assets insurance and all those kind of models where digital assets will have to be insured to make sure creators who create stuff online uh, don't lose their um, stuff to cyber attacks and all that. So, what are the different things, flavors? I mean, it doesn't have to be just AML. I'm just, I just wanted wanted to throw that question out to both of you. Probably, Jim. Uh, uh, what are you hearing? what 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 is the great point telling you about uh, Metaverse and uh, AML and all these stuff? Uh, I mean yeah, there's a number of different uh, different areas. I think first of all, metaverse Metaverse
2: is a great spot for uh, potential any organized crime to start meeting. If you don't even speak from a, if you don't even speak from a uh, a transaction perspective, I think the full anonymous uh, aspect of it and the ability that they can meet interact and sometimes interact in, let's say, someone's property and making sure that the person without the right token can't even access it kind of like starts bringing um bringing a, per- a perfect uh instead of like meeting in a hotel lobby or something like that just just jump in the in the metaverse um so i think that that just from a, a, a meeting perspective that then that's uh, interesting then you know the the same way that we've been seeing uh money laundering happen through kind of like in um in-game purchases uh whether you kind of like you try and buy like a little sword or something like that, or or you try and buy like a, an outfit. All of those different transactions around um, around in-game transaction can very much be used as a uh, uh, as a method to to launder money. You know, it, it doesn't need to be in the metaverse, but you can start like reusing a lot of those more traditional technique and then start bringing this back into the metaverse where there's a there's still less trace. Uh, well, there's as much traceability, but there's more anonymity. So this is probably some of the uh, some of the elements I, I would kind of highlight from that perspective.
1: I think, uh, so I did this one panel uh, at camps on the same exact same topic. There's some really interesting, you know, aspects that came by. Uh, my, I think my takeaway on this larger topic is, so I, I'm, I'm 40 years old. I don't understand the metaverse that well. Like when I look, I understand it conceptually. I've played around and I'm like, this looks funky and this looks weird. It's not for me. My my son is 10. He is a huge Minecraft geek. And, you know, I've been like helping him out and I'm like, this looks a little bit similar. So I sat him down once. I was like, hey man, like if this sort of a world existed, do you think it's too weird or would you want to be a part of it? The kid took it like pretty normally. and Like, yeah, you know, I would give it a shot. I think there are, for me, the takeaway is just because you don't understand it, it doesn't mean that that's not going to exist. Maybe it's not for you. Maybe, you know, maybe I'm like my parents, you know, when an iPhone or, you know, something as basic as digital banking or or WhatsApp came by, it was probably alien for them. Uh, but they eventually caught up. Now it's a part of their life. It might, that metaverse, That that's what metaverse could be for me. But the most important aspect is a lot of people who don't understand the metaverse, are probably designing or are in positions of power to design policies that the ten year olds tomorrow are going to end up using so a fundamentally it's very important for people who don't understand metaverse to not write it off spend the time and understand and excite these questions exactly around what you asked is you know what does it really mean what could the future look like because if I'm able to fathom and visualize a lot of these situation, especially the bad one, I should be able to go and help steer the policy help steer clients, help steer the right people. Because if this damn thing goes off the handle, uncontrolled, and I'm not saying that, you know, control as in like, this has to be centralized or, you know, any of those, but the the last thing I want is like, the Jim's point, like anonymous people, you know, organ trafficking, you know, happening on the metaverse, you know, um, child pornography, there's so much just bad stuff that happens behind doors. Does all of this happen on Craigslist or Gumroad or whatever? The answer is yes, but you're building, you know, you're just literally building a parallel in a universe. I'm not saying that you're gonna start living there, but if that's gonna be a part of our life, then you might just, you might wanna do it right uh yep. fundamentally. So I think for a lot of people in position of power, I think it's important for them to understand what the risks could be. I think I think microtransactions, you know, for sure are there. Um my my sense tells me that it's still gonna be the same divide that we have in the larger crypto industry where you got C5 and D5. So the bigger metaverse players, I think could allow me to create my metaverse avatar and then link that to my real ID and keep these two separate because at the end of the day, if they find me doing funky stuff on the metaverse, they will report me based on my real identity to a law enforcement body. And then somebody's going to come knocking my door. I think that's how the bigger players are going to go and try and, you know, triangulate this. Um, It's, I fear that this is the problems. It's going to create are going to be less around uh, big ticket money laundering. They're going to be more around, you know, not just petty crime, but you know, whatever they say happens in the dark web. I think that can those kind of transactions you could probably see, you know, happen a lot more prevalently. Um, yeah, that's my take. But I think at some point. Uh, your two worlds will somehow be connected together uh, where one can be associated to the other, but you can live, um, you sh- you would be allowed to live a parallel life without really putting your, you know, face out there. And like Jim mentioned, he can buy that costume and sort of is, and yeah. look, look, yeah. look
2: pretty. I, think, uh, I, I do, I do think there's kind of, if we think of, of financial crime, there's, there's a lot in the metaverse from a, a scamming perspective. So as well, So, you know, we see a lot of the traditional scam, which is, you know, we we don't really get uh, caught too much in, but maybe our parents or grandparents get caught, you know, the Amazon uh, gift card, the uh, the Google gift card or whatever. But there is a lot of crime, uh, a lot of financial crime from a phishing perspective or scamming perspective that is happening, that people, you know, a little bit more educated from a fraud perspective are still getting into. So, you know, you think of like Decentraland, for example. Um, you know, there's a lot of scamming in terms of like the creation of website which kind of look or sounds a little bit like decentralized uh, decentralized, similar, similar portal. And then you know, they are major kind of like purchases of, of land being made via Ethereum or or, or, or whatever um on those platforms. And then you know, once the money uh, the money is gone, uh the, the money is gone. You can't just call your bank and try and get a refund or anything like that. So there's gonna be a lot of um exploitation of people like to your point jazz not really knowing what the metaverse is and what knowing what those risks are they're going to make transactions and then not not able to kind of like recover anything so i think ph- phishing and scamming is is going to be one of the the bigger area and that you know itself transforms into um transforms into money laundering right money laundering is transforming illicit proceeds of crime and making them sort of seem to be legitimate or at least hiding them as much as possible once those uh, once those funds from scam are uh, have been received and moved around, this is where it starts to be money laundering. And this is where we start like having to then uh, go for the uh, the on-chain analytics and use those different providers to investigate.
1: In like, in, in GERD-like metaverse news, I saw this week, uh, there was, uh, I'm forgetting the name of the platform. They just got funded, which is the Zillow Redfin equivalent of the metaverse. So you can go buy a little uh, apartment or sell yours. Like it's, it's a virtual one on a virtual platform. I you know I found it pretty exciting, but I'm sure like if I buy something and my wife finds me like logging in and trying to sell my virtual home, she's going to kick me out of this one <laughs> very quickly.
0: Yeah, I'm noticing there are also um, uh, almost like a replica of, of the real physical world where people in these big metaverses, renting out plots of land, so that's becoming a thing. It's um, you know, it, it and it brings to the question, all right, what exactly, what controls are we putting in place to make sure that people don't get hurt in the transactions in the process? Because just like what you guys say, you know, I can the avatar that I have can be very separate than the real ID, the real person that I am, and and how do you trace everything back? I think this is going to be. Um, an increasing challenge, should we be, uh, in, in this year and more, but since this is still sort of the new year, let's end with a more positive note. I feel like we keep going down the rabbit hole. What are some of the things that you two are looking forward to in this year? I know I have it on my list. that so I would love to meet you both in person somehow because Arun can't be the only one who has all the fun. Uh, but what else? What else are you two looking forward to in 2023?
2: I think one of the things that excites me, and one of the reasons kind of, we moved over from working for more traditional banking to, um, uh, to to kind of like fintech and crypto spaces uh seeing how uh, how innovative some of those kind of like uh, firms can be, you know, Crypto Winter is probably going to get rid of the lot of the, uh, uh, let's say we, we talk about the crypto bros or anything like that, but the, those kind of like that, a little bit less pioneers and in there for the quicker, the quick cash. I'm very excited to see how much innovation we're going to be able to actually bring to market um, and see how compliance can actually be working around that innovation rather than compliance is actually being hindering, uh, hindering it. So, you know, we, we're seeing some very interesting companies already kind of like supporting, you know, like Conduit, for example, supporting uh, how can we try and uh, leverage kind of crypto to not be, um, with, uh, with kind of like price volatility or currency volatility. So these are things that we don't think too much um, in traditional uh, traditional banking, but like seeing what those new ways of uh, transacting and new um, <clears throat> new ways of, of, of payments can bring is going to be very exciting and understanding how those can also be... Uh, uh, abused, sadly, but again, don't want to be the the one uh, uh, kind of like bringing compliance and and being the blocker, but more seeing how can we uh, we foster innovation without uh, without just being a blocker.
1: So yeah, I think 100% agree with everything that Jim just mentioned. I think uh, I feel like 2023 is going to be a a little bit of a year of correction. It's going to be a, a process of <laughs> you know year of natural selection. Um, I think the winter is, and my I believe that it's probably going to last. You know, the entire year you're going to see a lot of gloom and doom happen, not just in the crypto space, but in the larger industry. Um, hopefully, this is going to give a lot of folks, you know, an opportunity to shed the uh, shed the fat, go super lean, figure out what you really have to focus on. Um, I feel a little not so excited and, you know, honestly a little bad about uh, a lot of like novelty businesses that took off in the last year or two years who are probably going to run out. They're not going to have enough runway and they're not going to be able to raise more capital this year. Uh, So you'll see a lot of that. But I am super bullish about uh, businesses who ran a tight ship. They had tightened their, you know, belt buckles early on and they're going to continue building, um, you know, while this, you know, gloom lasts and focus on the right things, it's going to give them an opportunity to pivot, to build whatever is important for them. So I think what's going to emerge from 23 as we go into the next year would be some really exceptionally strong game-changing players, whoever's going to survive. They're going to build some amazingly, amazingly cool stuff. So you will see a lot of innovation that's going to surface, but I don't know if that innovation is going to get immediate traction. I just hope that the innovation, which requires a lot of, you know, engineering and a lot of product and capital influx is able to sustain the downturn so that they can see the sun come up next year. On our personal front, like I'm super pumped about, the fact that we've been able to beat our own expectations and we've done well for ourselves from a business standpoint. I just hope that we can put the little corner that we're in the consulting industry, as we say on its head, and we can, if we can't be smarter than our clients, we still can be at par and we. Uh, can change the whole dynamic of the typical consulting industry just being like a body shop to, you know, smarter companies. So we're trying to upscale our game, trying to hire some of the best people uh, and just plow through whatever we can. And um, hopefully that uh, continues for us. We are pretty bullish. But overall, that's what I feel the year is going to be.
0: If I were to sum up, I think we all look forward to the Boeing, after the deep freeze let's hope that happens soon
2: <laughs> yeah. um well, i would say and i would say let, let's hope that all of the i think you know i mentioned there's a lot of uh, some of the quick money earners that, that went down Sally. there's a lot of like really innovative firm really interesting firms that are going down as well so hopefully those are able to kind of like pick uh, pick back up despite the uh, the, the lack of funding in the topic at the moment um so yeah f- fingers crossed for, for for those as well
0: Absolutely. And thank you so much, Jim and Jazz, for joining us on the show today. I look forward to more discussions with you both. And for the rest of our listeners, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of One Vision. We will talk to you all next week.